This is Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests will discuss important health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today our guest comes to us from Pueblo, Colorado, Dr. Kim Dunosek, a dermatologist there, who has a unique story to tell us about her work with her husband, the co-founder of her group, in Uganda and in other African countries working to prevent HIV and AIDS and to promote chastity in a truly non-politically correct way. Today we'll cover some medical news. We'll go through a women's health care tip of the day from Chris. Uh, I will have my patented medical trivia question of the day. And then we have an interesting listener question to discuss at the end of the show. But first, let's go to some medical news items. Chris, I decided this time, since I have been avoiding most things dermatological, since skin is my... My wheelhouse, I thought I'd take a couple things from one of my recent journals, the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology. I can't imagine a more interesting journal to read. I can, but <laughs> this one's good nevertheless. Uh, I chose two articles, and one of them has a, a long title, which almost tells what's in the article, so you think, why did they have to write the article? But the article's about who performs reconstructive surgery in Medicare patients. Fascinating. Let's hear Let's hear it. Well, reconstructive surgery, you know, I have patients ask me all the time, are you a plastic surgeon? I say, by definition, no, I'm not a plastic surgeon, but I do reconstructive surgery. That means taking some problem, some defect, some hole in your body, and putting it back together so it looks and functions as normally as possible. So reconstructive surgery can include just cutting out a mole and sewing it together. It could be cutting out an enormous cancer and putting it back together. So somebody took all the Medicare data in the country, and that's a lot of patient visits. And they found out that in a one-year period, there were over 100,000 non-cancerous things cut off the skin. And guess what kind of doctor put together most of those? I give up. You give up. You're, you're just too easy, Chris. <laughs> 61% of them were put together by dermatologists, 8% by plastic surgeons. Well, you think, surely cancers. Cancers, dermatologists have this image, I think, that we just deal with cosmetic things and acne maybe, and, and sometimes warts. Well, in that year, over 340,000 skin cancers were cut off. And believe it or not, 81% of them were cut off and sewn back together by dermatologists, only 6.5% by plastic surgeons. And then they looked at something called complex repairs. That's where you're sewing things together. It takes a little more extra work. You have to loosen up the skin pretty wide. And in that group of almost 400,000, 84% were done by dermatologists and 5% by plastic surgeons. And then you get into what people typically refer to as, quote, plastic surgery. That's flaps and grafts. And a flap I describe as you're making cuts like a jigsaw puzzle in the skin, but you're keeping part of the skin connected to the body and then putting it back together. That's a flap. They usually match better than a graft. A graft is cutting skin off of one part of the body and putting it on another and hoping it lives. So, Tom, what other than offending our plastic surgery colleagues that may be after us tomorrow— What's the significance of this study and this data? Well, what I'm showing is that even the plastic surgery repairs flaps, 82% of the 129,000 done in one year were done by dermatologists, and 63% of the skin grafts were done by dermatologists. It's not meant to make plastic surgeons angry. They do far more things than I have a clue what to do. All I do is work on the skin. They not only work on the skin, they work internally, they do breast reconstruction, they do cleft lip, cleft palate, they do stuff with the brain, they do stuff with ear, nose, and throat surgeons, they do stuff with neurosurgeons. They have a whole wide array of things they can do. The point of this is to more demonstrate that dermatologists probably do more than people think we do. We do deal with a lot of disease, we do deal with a lot of cancer, and we do have certain surgical skills. Now, do you think there's any significance in the article when they studied just the Medicare population, is there something about that population in dermatology versus the non-Medicare population in dermatology? It's simply a matter of what data is the easiest to get your hands on. Sure. So virtually everybody over age 65 is in this database. If you take people under 65, there's any number of insurance company data banks that you would have to go through. You know, isn't it interesting, the overlap that exists in medicine? I think a lot of non 
medicine listeners might think that there's, you know, a manual that says, if you have this problem, this kind of physician does it. But in reality, in your specialty with skin and my specialty in gynecology overlapping with urology and general surgery, but that's true of a lot of our specialties, isn't it? That's a really good point. I mean, sometimes even when I'm looking at my family members about where to send them for medical care, it's sometimes difficult to figure it out. At the end of the day, we want our friends and our family to see the best person for them where they live and where they are based on their problem. But that's not always easy to figure out. No, it's not. So if you have someone medical in your family and you want to take a stab at it, ask them. They ask me all the time, and I don't mind because it's not black and white. You know, Dr. Malali, our other co-host, isn't with us tonight, but if he were here, I think he would butt in and say, this is another argument for having a good long-term relationship with a primary care physician that can help you and your family members navigate these complex waters. Oh, absolutely. You want that navigator in your life. The second article is basically a short one on trends in U.S. sunscreen formulation. It's basically saying that as time goes on, and uh, sunscreen use is only increasing about 1% per year, so that 162 million units were sold in 2016. The percent of sprays is going up. The percent of lotions is going down, such that within the next five years, probably more sunscreen spray will be used than lotion. Interesting. Are there implications in terms of its ability to protect skin from sun damage? No, the, the... real deciding factor is how thick you put it on. Do you put it on as thick as necessary? And the overwhelming answer is no. Hardly anybody does. But sprays are uh, more tolerated, especially by men versus women. And so I, on me and on my family, when we're out at the pool, use a spray most of the time. And if I use a spray on the face, I spray it into my child's hands and then have them rub it on their face. I was just trying to wonder for a moment what it must be like as a child with a swimming pool growing up with a dermatologist for a father. They're awfully lucky, Chris, <laughs> awfully lucky. And, and one of my nurses that assists me in surgery every day says that at their pool, her daughter's friends, when they come over, they know they have to line up, and my nurse puts sunscreen on them before they're allowed outside. She is so good. Outstanding. Well, well, if you just joined us, you've joined Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where we are discussing the medical news of the day, and now transitioning to Chris with today's Women's Health Tip of the Day. Yeah, today, Tom, I'm going to talk about something that it's very important, and that is bones and bone density studies. And all your patients have bones. All of our, that is something that's universal with our patients, that, <laughs> that they all contain bones. And they're all important. Uh, I think most of us are aware that as we age, men and women, but particularly women, uh, women can come, become susceptible to a condition called osteoporosis, right? That's a thinning and a weakening of the bones. It causes micro fractures in the spinal in the spinal bones such that elderly women are often bent in what we call a kyphotic shape, uh, or, or as my mother would say, they're stoop-shouldered. Yeah, they uh, look like they're leaning over all the time. That's right. That's because there's little microscopic fractures on the front side of mm-hmm. their vertebral column that allows their body with gravity to s- sort of actually begin to bend over time. More important than that, though, are fractures. Uh, and we don't have to look very far to find someone whose life really began to deteriorate uh, right after a hip fracture. So Uh, if there's anything we could do to prevent hip fractures, we could do a lot to make the quality of life much better for many, many of our patients. And I bet you have a way we can do that. We do. The bone (laughs) density study. Now, a lot of people have heard of bone density study. And what is it exactly and when, when it should be done and what does it entail? Just for a little bit of a reference, though, about 54 million people have osteoporosis. Wow. That's three million new cases a year of osteoporosis. One in four women will break a bone secondary to osteoporosis. Wow, that's huge. Yeah, and again, uh, we can think of many, many examples where particularly an elderly woman is doing relatively well, maybe living alone, uh, maybe still driving. She has a hip fracture, and that often represents the beginning of the end. Yes. So a bone density study studies just that, the density of the bones, And it uses something called a DEXA scanner to measure the density of the bone on the hip and in the lumbar region uh, of the spine. Now, what what kind of results do you get? Or before we get to that, I guess I would say, who needs a bone density study? And this is confusing because there are a lot of bone density programs out there available. But any woman over the age of 65 needs a bone density study. Any? Any woman over 65, that's right. 
And men are not left out of this, although the data with men is a little more confusing. But generally, the National Osteoporosis Foundation suggests that if you're a man over the age of 70, you need a bone density study. If you break a bone before the age of 50, you need a bone density study. Uh, and if you're a postmenopausal woman, regardless of your age, with certain risk factors, then you need a bone density study. So you're saying as even well. teenage athletes need a bone density study since they're under 50? Depending on the nature of their break, uh, but generally, no, it's over 50 where they've had a break. They would need a density study. Over 50 where they've had a break. Got yeah, it. our kids that are banging themselves up on the sports field, that's, not, that's from high impact, not yes. low density. Yes. Uh, the, the score that you get on a bone density study can be a little confusing to understand. And it's reported as what's called a T-score. And as we increasingly try to get patients to know their numbers, whether it's yes. cholesterol or their bone, uh, or their BMI or other numbers, you need to know your T-score as well. And the way that it works is this. A normal bone density has a T-score of negative 1 and above. So from negative 1 to more positive is normal. From negative 1 down to negative 2.5 is marginal, and that's called osteopenia, not osteoporosis, sure. or a thinning of the bones, but not yet the disease. And then a T-score of negative 2.5 and below, that's the diagnosis of osteoporosis. And if we think about those categories, uh, again, the woman who has a negative 1 to negative 2.5 or low density or osteopenia, they may or may not need treatment with a medication, but it certainly deserves a discussion with their primary care physician. And what treatments are used for these women? There's a lot of different medicines now. I mean, I think people remember probably when Fosamax was one of the very first medications on the market. Now there's a lot of different medications, a lot of different formulations, some with different side effect profiles. There's even uh, long-term injections that can be given for people who can't tolerate medications. So there's not a one-size-fits-all for the medicine. But if you're a woman over 65, a man over 70, or you've had fractures before that, please Talk to your physician about getting a bone density scan. Absolutely. Going, uh, preventing a hip fracture can go a long way to making the rest of your life a positive experience. And before our break, I will pose our medical trivia question of the day. And today, I'm feeling rather generous. I'm not going to give an open-ended question. No, I'm going to give a multiple-choice question. With which of the following is bariatric surgery concerned? Bariatric surgery is it A, treating people who have beriberi due to vitamin B1 sufficiency or insufficiency, B, treating scuba divers who ascend too quickly and have the bends or decompression sickness, is it C, treating non-healing wounds that will not heal with typical topical wound care procedures, is it D, a treatment for obesity, or is it E, a treatment for cancer of the appendix? We will be back with the answer for that in the fourth segment of the show. But after this break, we'll be right back with today's guest, Kim Dernovsek on Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Doctor with Dr. Tom McGovern, and I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, coming to you from Redeemer Radio Studios. It gives me great pleasure to introduce today's guest, Dr. Kim Dernovsek, She's the medical director and co-founder of Universal Chastity Education. She's also a dermatologist in Pueblo, Colorado, and has numerous accolades behind her name. But she's really here because of this unique work that she's done in Uganda. Welcome, Kim. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're welcome. This topic came to Chris and me because at the Denver 2017 Catholic Medical Association annual conference, you gave an inspiring talk called Teens and Sex, Reach Them Now or Treat Them Later. And this is your signature lecture, which I understand you've given in multiple continents. Yeah, so, I, I have. And, and so let's get down to the nitty gritty. Western governments, many non-governmental organizations, and most people of goodwill want to reduce the prevalence of HIV and AIDS. But most of these groups don't think that human beings have the ability to change their behavior and therefore reduce the risk of this infection and this disease. Yet, there is an incredibly successful story that occurred in your Uganda. And something about that caught your attention that drew you there in the year 2003. That's right. You know, it's the most inspiring story in the success against HIV AIDS. 
in fact, it was reported to USAID to be, quote, the most significant decline of HIV prevalence of any country in the world. And I want to comment that it still is. But basically what happened in the late 1980s, Uganda had been suffering under the regimes of Idi Amin and Milton Obote, and it was recorded that in 1991, they had an overall HIV prevalence of 21%, which was the highest in, in all of the world. And actually, in some subgroup populations, like the military, it was approaching 30%. But then what happened in statistical analysis in 2001, World Health Organization noted that while HIV was going up throughout sub-Saharan Africa. In Uganda, it had dropped to 5%. 5%. And, and it, it's, 5%. it's a poor country compared to the United States. Mm-hmm. And yet with yes. their infrastructure, they were able to do something we in the United States couldn't do. Yes. And there was a very important uh, report that was published called What Happened in Uganda? Question mark, in which they attempted to explain this by what they, what they described as ABC approach, which stood for, in their words, A for abstinence, B for be faithful, and if not, C for condoms as a last resort. Now, The reality of this, though, was that the Ugandans themselves actually called their policy zero grazing, which, (laughs) yes, yeah, it refers to the agrarian way of life that they have in the poor African countries, where um, the way the president described it to these people is, you know, your wedding ring is like the tether with which you tether your animal and it cannot stray, and that's equivalent to the wedding ring. Beautiful. And so they had ways of explaining it to the people. But, but you know, it really was President Museveni who, in 1986, when he came into office, he consulted his infectious disease specialist, Dr. Nantulia, and he thoroughly explained to him that, you know, AIDS transmission wouldn't occur if the people changed their ways and return to abstinence and being faithful. Now, why was this important? It was important because the Westerners had been removed by all their agencies from Uganda because it was not safe. In fact, they did not return again until 1995. So we have this really unique period of time (laughs) in public health where we probably will never again have this window where clear data shows that sexual behavior was changed because condoms simply weren't in the country. So, so how did he do this? Well, what he did, this is African, he beat the drums, he sounded the alarm, and I'm talking about the president, and he basically got all of the leaders, the church leaders, the teachers, and I might mention to you on the radio here, the radio waves were really (laughs) important in this success, because people had to be notified and told that in order to save Uganda, they needed to return to, as they put it, biblical ways of abstinence and faithfulness. And the First Lady actually really took the, um, the young people under her wing, and she would speak at big promotional events, and they really worked hard as a country. And, um, and so that's why we can be sure. We also know by condom counts um, that, you know, shipments that actually went into the country that until 1995 there were very few condoms in Uganda. Well, that's wonderful. So after this, obviously, the World Health Organization learned from this, the CDC, and they changed what is being done in other countries, right? (laughs) Don't we wish. (laughs) No, despite this, what we're dealing with here is the Western world continues to promote condoms to every every developing world country and and in our, our own country. I mean, it still is our primary method that is promoted to our youth and to sexually active people to, you know, supposedly prevent HIV 
AIDS. You so, know, we've got pre-exposure prophylaxis now and post-exposure prophylaxis, and now they're talking about treatment to be prevention by getting the viral loads down. But, you know, the problem is that it, it was the behavior change in Uganda that was established scientific, with scientific evidence, really. There's the proof that behavior change works. And Absolutely. we don't have that for condoms. If you've just joined us listening, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where we are interviewing Dr. Kim Donosek about the incredible reduction in HIV-AIDS due to behavior change in the country of Uganda and what that means for us today. And I think Chris has a question for you. Well, sure, Kim. I was just, when you were, when you were describing that, I just was picturing what it must look like, or I'd love you to tell me what it looks like when, when you talk to public health officials here in the, in the United States about this and suggest that the best way to lower HIV infection rates is to get rid of condoms. I'm guessing you don't always get a warm reception. <laughs> no, it, it's really frustrating. Um, you know, if you look at the CDC website, it's very clear their first statement is that abstinence is the only 100% effective way to prevent HIV transmission sexually. And actually, it's also stated right in the CDC website that condom use decreases the risk of HIV transmission by only 80 to 85 percent. And that has to be with consistent condom use, which means all the time. And, and that's the only way you get that effectiveness. And we have 30 years of experience with multiple studies and evidence that shows that people simply don't use condoms consistently or all the time. If they consider themselves condom users, they actually only use them some of the time or most of the time. And, and then on top of that, we have the whole issue of what we call in public health risk compensation. Okay, so um, what, what that basically means is that you, you think that you're using a modality that is said to make you safe. So since you think you're safe, you will increase your behavior, your activity, under the presumption that you're safe. And in doing so, when you increase the activity, you actually end up increasing your risk. Just like and people who use inadequate sunscreen stay out in the sun longer. Right. Or, or people, you know, I would say on the sunscreen example, you know, people who never would have retired in Arizona or taken up golf, they, they choose activities because they believe that they will be fully protected by sunscreen. Correct. So, and so Kim, you really knows. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. So, Kim, you and your husband, who I believe is an endocrinologist, uh, made this trip in 2003. What about that led you to form this organization, Universal Chastity Education? Okay, so when we, when we got to Uganda and actually started talking to the people there, you know, and they had heard something about this ABC success that was being reported, but we, we saw some interesting things. We heard doctors introducing themselves as meeting, at meetings and saying, I am so-and-so, and I am married to one wife. Uh, we heard clergy, married clergy, they have married clergy there in the Anglican Church, saying the same thing. And then we heard them referring to things like it was A-B stop and A-B full stop, and dropping that C right away. And then some of them were saying it was A-B through Christ. Now, it became real clear that the answer to HIV-AIDS they had it. It was simple, low-cost behavior change, and that if the rest of the world could implement this, we would have the answer. But as far as forming UCE, what happened for, for Ken and I is I got to give my lecture, Teens and Sex, Reach Them Now or Treat Them Later, at Makerere University. And in that, I was surrounded after I spoke, and they said they wanted my help. And what help did they say they wanted? Well, they wanted the science I had presented about the other sexually transmitted diseases and about their own success. But they also started pulling these cards. These young Ugandan men started pulling these cards out of their wallets. 
and saying, we also really need your help getting more of these cards back to the youth in home in our villages. Because I signed my card here, and they showed us the card. It was a chastity card signed years ago. And I am going to present this to my wife on my wedding day. That's what we do. And that really, I mean, Ken and I, my husband and I, we, that was it. We were touched, and we knew we had to do something to help the Ugandans. Um, We knew probably the help would come from nowhere else. We could at least get them the card. So we thought, well, we'll start a nonprofit organization so we could get a tax deduction to get these Ugandans their cards. And that's really how it started. Ah. And we would never have thought at that time in 2003 that we would be doing later outreaches all over Uganda, Burundi, Tanzania, and have 400,000 signed chastity commitments in Africa. Thanks. Wow. That's Thank remarkable. God. That is remarkable work. I mean, it's interesting. You think about something that had such a dramatic impact. It didn't involve technology. It didn't involve gadgetry. It didn't involve even a lot of money. And involved a cultural change that led to a behavior change. Simply remarkable. Well, we're at the end of our uh, second segment of the show. So uh, we'll be right back after our break with more Dr. Doctor and our discussion with Dr. Kim Dernosek about universal chastity education. This is Dr. Doctor with Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Chris Stroud coming to you from Redeemer Radio Studios, where today we are interviewing Dr. Kim Dernosek, co-founder of Universal Chastity Education. Kim, it's great to have you with us, and uh, we can't thank you enough for joining us. As we continue our discussion, I'd really love to know how you chose the name Universal Chastity Education. Actually, we didn't choose it. (laughs) The Ugandans did. And, you know, when I told them we were going to go back and start the nonprofit and we needed a name, and we certainly couldn't call it Zero Grazing, (laughs) they said, well, let us meet and... And they came back and they said, this shall be called Universal Chastity Education. We will call it UCE. It'll be like UPE, which is Universal Primary Education, Uh because our president already has that. It's for everyone of any age in which they get free primary school education. And, And so the universal and that whole concept of being for young, old, male, female, single, and married. Now, when they said that, you know, where I was, as far as my understanding is, I was confused by that because I was coming from an abstinence paradigm. So I said, well, wouldn't this be better called universal abstinence education? Because of my understand, my poor understanding of chastity, really. Um, and, and so at that point, they said, oh, doctor, doctor, <laughs> doctor, chastity we get is that a lot. for yes. everyone because it's more than abstinence. It's yes, about following certainly. the noble, pure ways as modeled by Jesus Christ in all things, in how we live, how we interact with each other, and not just with regard to sex. Well, so, Kim, so, that's beautiful. But I give a lot of talks, and I know so does Tom. I can't imagine putting up a title slide that says, Come hear me talk about chastity. Um, <laughs> how, how did you get people... How did you get their ear and get them interested? Well, you know, when we came home, I mean, we just explained to them the Ugandans had this success against HIV-AIDS. We recounted what this success was from 21% down to 5%. And therefore, can we be humble enough to follow their advice and their wisdom in how to, you know, to best reach people with this message and chastity was the answer that they said it was so can we listen to them or not do we always have to have the answers or can we listen to these poor africans who were successful well now your organization uses um meetings you call chastity outreaches and at these you get people to want to sign these commitment cards why do they come to the outreaches? Why do they want to sign? And are Ugandans more likely to want to sign than Americans? Is there something different about them? 
Well, you know, the culture in Uganda is different. There's no doubt about it. First of all, there is complete community agreement that all youth should be taught abstinence until marriage. And so the UCE outreaches are welcomed in all of the schools, in all denominations, and well, even in Muslim schools. Yeah, when you say that, I feel like we should sort of have a moment of silence, <laughs> uh, yeah. just out of respect for the culture. That's pretty, yes. that's amazing. I guess there was a time, perhaps before our times, that that was true in America, but certainly not today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in fact, we have waiting lists for schools that want the UCE team to come. And, and which is, you know, difficult for us because it's just, you know, inadequate funding to get them to all the places that the, that the schools want the teams. But, you know, basically what happens at one of these outreaches is that all of the kids get a chance at the end of this two- to four-hour outreach to make a decision about chastity and then sign this chastity commitment card that we we were just talking about the young men showed me and and so how does this work exactly that what is the ugandan method for reaching these rural youth well they have smart young Ugandans who are who have been well educated and and present themselves well and they are the Ugandan team of like three to five people and after the kids hear these team testimonies and by the way these schools average anywhere from 200 attendees to a thousand at a time we never know how many will be there for the team yeah it's amazing they, they get all the medical facts about HIV, AIDS, and STDs. They get a chastity overview. They get a secondary virginity overview, which is really important yes. in Africa because many have not been abstinent. And they get this chance to write an anonymous question on a piece of paper. And then the team collects them and answers as many questions about sex and abstinence and love and chastity that they can and then they get this chance to make a commitment and if they choose chastity they come up to the front in front of everybody Mm. or they raise their cards high in front of everybody and then the team prays over them and it's really amazing because there's a very much of a positive kind of peer pressure that's formed and and then they they form clubs and it it just it has grown itself so there's follow-up it's not a one-time altar call type type of thing no after after they've been prayed over and you know one of the amazing things that's really been been wonderful to to get news of is that there are teachers that oftentimes will stand up and just be overwhelmed by what they heard and they'll take a card and or they'll maybe make a statement or they'll sometimes we've even had them show their cards from back in the 1990s and they become then the leaders of these uce clubs because you have to have a teacher leader but clubs after school clubs are really fun for the kids and they all want to be in a club in Africa. And then what they do in the clubs is they do Bible studies. They we have some sports clubs where the girls play netball and the boys play soccer and and the clubs then form the whole jumping off point for raising the kids up to sustaining the mission of teaching abstinence until a faithful marriage. That's because beautiful. they become the future leaders. It's, it sounds self-sustaining. <laughs> well, really yeah. If you just joined us, we're uh, on Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio discussing universal chastity education and the incredible success story in Uganda with Dr. Kim Denosek, the co-founder of the organization. Now, Kim... People love stories. Could you please tell us one or two of your favorite stories of how this work has impacted lives? Absolutely. You know, the testimonies that come in from UCE are absolutely powerful. And one of the things the kids learn in the outreaches is our God is a God of second chance. That's how the Africans put it. When they talk about forgiveness and changing to a lifestyle of abstinence, a lot of these kids have already sold their body for their school fees. And some have gotten on the path of prostitution, which is always so sad. But here, for example, here's a very dramatic testimony that came in to us from Burundi. 
quote, I started being a prostitute in 2007 when I was still 18 years old. I left school and village and came down to hire a room here in Myogo near Lake Tanganyika where I could have enough clients from the fishermen. It happened that I attended a UCE open-air meeting two years ago, I think. I laughed at those who signed the commitment cards. But later on, I decided to sign it also. I joined the church. Now I am married legally, and God has blessed us with two children. I thank UCE for the role played to change my life for the better. Wow, that's remarkable. And I understand that you even have testimonies from married couples having this changed their lives. This was unexpected, really. For you know, we thought that well, what we began with is that it was to reach the massive numbers of the rural youth with an abstinence until marriage. But what happened was Burundi. Burundi had basically problems with needing to repatriate. Uh, people who had left the country during various stressful times. And, and so the program in Burundi said that the scarring from having left the country, formed new relationships, was so severe that when these, you know, husbands usually came back, then they needed to heal these original marriages of the couple, you know, what they had been when, before they left Burundi. And so they decided to outreach to them. Now, they did it by two ways. First, they encouraged the community members to actually come to the youth outreaches that were going on in the school. Mm. And Ken and I were at one of those once where we saw this, and it was so compelling because, you know, it was all in Kurundi, which is the language. But Mm -hmm. we've done enough (laughs) of these over the years that we knew what all was happening. And when the time came to ask to sign commitment cards, we saw these these parents, these you know poor people coming up as couples wanting to sign the cards. And and what happened was that the kids, their kids who were in school, had to read these cards to them. And we saw oh. that we observed it as the as the students showed the parents where to make their mark on the card and the pride that they had about having made that commitment to chastity. And, and then because of that, they started actually having, having, you know, sessions for these couples that were repatriating. And for example, here, here's a quote from one of these testimonies that came in. I'm living a married life based on the old sociocultural practices. By the way, this is all translated and everything, sure. because most of these people that are of this age group can't read and write. Believing that a woman has to do all the family duties, such as cultivating the plot, preparing the food, bearing children, etc. My main daily business as a respectful husband was to spend money and waste my time with other friends until late evening to claim food and sexual intercourse from my tired wife who has been working all day long. My attendance at this UCE seminar gives me a remedy to my family life. I swear that from today onward, I will be helping my wife and will treat her with dignity, promising that I will live a faithful life married to her. The team reported, upon hearing of her husband's change of heart, his wife began to cry. Then they both rejoiced and embraced with tears streaming down their cheeks. Wow. Well, Kim, I would imagine every one of our listeners probably has similar tears stringing down their cheeks listening to your story. It really is remarkable. As we finish up, what else would you like our listeners to know about UCE? And probably most importantly, how can our listeners support you and your apostate if they are so inclined? Well, perhaps it's best heard from an African himself, Sam Rutakiera, who was the co-chair of the Uganda National AIDS Prevention Committee, wrote to the Washington Post in 2008. And this was at a time when they were planning to, you know, reduce the uh, funding for AIDS in Africa. And he wrote this. We, the poor of Africa, remain silenced to the global dialogue. Our wisdom about our own culture is ignored. 
telling men and women to keep sex sacred, to save sex for marriage and then remain faithful, is telling them to love one another deeply with their whole hearts. Most HIV infections in Africa are spread by sex outside of marriage, casual sex, and infidelity. The solution is faithful love. So hear my plea, HIV AIDS profiteers, let my people go. We understand that casual sex is dear to you, but staying alive is dear to us. <laughs> Listen to African wisdom, and we will show you how to prevent AIDS. They are wise. And yes. if you do want to donate to this apostolate, their website is www.uceglobal.org. Kim, it's been wonderful having you today. Thank you for being part of Dr. Doctor. Kim, thank you. God bless you, and God bless your work. Thank you so much, and thanks for this opportunity to tell folks about this wonderful success. This is Dr. Doctor with Dr. Tom McGovern, and I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, coming to you from the Redeemer Radio Studios. And welcome back. Tom, I know at this part of the show, our listeners, they're just limp with breathless anticipation to hear the answer to the trivia question. Uh, Well, (laughs) with which of the following is bariatric surgery concerned? Is it A, treating people with beriberi, the disease due to vitamin B1 insufficiency? That's a very interesting possibility. Oh, you are so funny. (laughs) Is it B, treating scuba divers who have ascended too quickly and have the bends, otherwise known as decompression sickness? Is it C, treating non-healing wounds that will not heal with typical topical wound care? Is it D, something to treat obesity? Or is it E, something to treat cancer of the appendix? Well, I threw in a couple of confusing things in there because some of them are treated with hyperbaric oxygen. That would be the non-healing wounds. That would be the decompression sickness. Beriberi disease is spelt differently than bariatric surgery, which has nothing to do with cancer of the appendix, leaving a treatment for obesity. So bariatric surgery is just another term for weight loss surgery. And there's a number of different procedures That can be done, but they essentially reduce the size of the stomach in various ways so people feel full sooner. And in many ways, it prevents them from overeating. It's physically impossible. It it is. And then after a while, they just develop a habit that they don't want to eat as frequently as they used to eat. And, you know, and where does this term bariatric come from? What does it have to do with it? Well, it actually comes from a really old word, a Proto-Indo-European word. And this was a language that preceded virtually all the languages of Western Europe where uh, English comes from. And it comes from a root word just meaning heavy, like when we talk about bariatric pressure or barometric pressure or a baritone who has a, a lower or heavier sounding voice or, or the metal barium. Uh, those are all things related to heaviness. So bariatric surgery is surgery for people who are heavy and don't want to be anymore. You know, Tom, in my practice, I certainly have seen people that, that really have had their lives transformed by this type of surgery. Once, once their obesity got to a point uh, they were really beyond help without something like bariatric surgery. But then the good news was it was life transforming for them. And and from a disease standpoint, we see traumatic reductions in the years following the surgery. Diabetes goes away. Heart disease seems to be reversed. Orthopedic problems get better. It really can be life-changing, can it? Oh, they feel like a completely new person. In fact, I was laying down reading a little bit of dermatology before I came today, and I came across an article that says... People with obesity who have bariatric surgery versus those with obesity who don't actually reduce the risk of psoriasis by one-third. So for every three obese people that would have gotten psoriasis, one of them won't if they have bariatric surgery. And, and psoriasis is actually probably a systemic disease which has um, an increased rate of uh, heart disease associated with it, among other problems. Remarkable. Well, yet another example of medical trivia that's not trivial. It's, it's not. And in fact, who is recommended for bariatric surgery? Typically those with a, a body mass index or a BMI over 40, which is considered medically as, quote, morbid obesity. But even those with a BMI with 35 to 40 are now having it done. So if you've tried other things, this might be for you if you fall into that category. Excellent. You know, Tom, we've got a listener question that we want to... I love listener questions. <laughs> this comes to us from an anonymous individual that, that we 
uh, that we all know. He's not that anonymous, but I'm not going to say his name. But it's about it, the evils of gluten. Is this the no- anonymous guy who hosts the morning show on Redeemer Radio? His last name rhymes with Hyman. <laughs> you are good at keeping a secret. <laughs> so his question is gluten. Is it a legitimate concern or is it overblown? There are people that are suggesting we try it for everything you can imagine, including behavioral issues with children. Could gluten, dairy, or sugar be the cause? What What is the, the takeaway on gluten? Is it the root of all evil? And can it be responsible for things like autism and other behavioral problems? Well, according to the Bible, the root of all evil is the love of money. It's not gluten. Not the love of gluten. It's not even the love of gluten or mm-hmm. gluten itself. It's the love of money. So we can rule it out as the source of all or even mo- most or much evil. And to be honest, I'm trying to get a gastroenterologist on the show who can talk to us broadly about the question of gluten because it comes up in conversations regularly in all types of venues. So we're not going to try to answer that question today because we simply don't know enough. What I did do was try to focus this question on one area, did some research, because he asked, can gluten have something to do with childhood behavior. I had not been aware that this was a thing. Were you, Chris, that people were looking at this? No, not at all. I mean, certainly um, uh, in obstetrics and gynecology and pediatrics and family medicine, we hear everything associated with autism. And I think we get sort of desensitized uh, to the topic. Well, and what I did find is that there's not much research done regarding gluten and behavior except in the autism population. And in fact, I found in one study it said that 20% of all children with autism have been on a gluten-free diet. So it means there is some information going on in the autism community that says this is a real relationship. So I looked And in fact, in autism research in 2018, there was uh, a study, and that's where they said that, yes, one out of every five preschool-aged children, preschool-aged with autism spectrum disorder, have ever used a gluten-free diet. So this isn't even teens and adults with autism. These are preschool-aged. So this has become very popular. Well, all the studies that I found that looked at this in a blinded, controlled fashion, which means that they compared children with autism who were on a gluten-free diet to children without autism, or to children with autism who were not on a gluten-free diet, was there any change in behavior? And all three studies reported in the last five years show that there was no relationship. They don't rule out the possibility, but right now they say that the change is probably too small, if it is there, to be significant. So right now, there's not the evidence to say that a gluten-free diet will help a child with autism. You know, it would be very difficult from a research protocol standpoint to narrow in, is it gluten having the effect? Because uh, certainly the diets that some of my patients eat that are gluten-free, if they're not eating gluten, they're eating something else. And the something else may play a bigger part than the absence of gluten. Very difficult to, to tease out those questions. What I have been able to find out regarding gluten is that there is some evidence that there is almost an autoimmune reaction going on with gluten. The Not only your lymph nodes or your skin, but your gut also has its own immune system that reacts to things going through it. And so that could be a source of inflammation in a number of parts of the body contributing to different problems associated with gluten. So I'm not here to say that gluten does not play a role in certain things, particularly what's being called leaky gut syndrome. Absolutely. In the endometriosis world, in my specialty, it's very, very popular to eat gluten-free because of that connection uh, with inflammatory process, with endometriosis being such an example of the inflammatory process sort of gone awry, uh, that many patients will report decreased pain Uh, when they eat gluten-free diets. Our co-host, Andrew Mullally, emailed both of us uh, last week about a study that he found, and I want to include it here. Uh, It was reported uh, on January 25th in USA Today, and then I looked up the uh, original article in uh, Birth Defects Research, uh, stating that either a low-carbohydrate or low-carb or gluten-free diets could be linked to serious birth defects. I thought this was fascinating 
so here's one instance in which a gluten-free or low-carb diet is actually harmful. And this is back to your world, Chris, with folic acid. Now, folic acid is supplemented in a number of different foods, and many of them contain gluten. So when people go gluten-free, a lot of expecting mothers are not getting the folic acid they need. Well, what they found out is that women on gluten-free diets who are pregnant actually have a higher rate of birth defects in their children, specifically uh, in the um, spina bifida or anencephaly uh, category. Yeah, isn't that interesting? It's sort of that law of unintended consequences. They're accidentally under uh, under using folic acid by eliminating gluten. But what they showed here is that even the women taking additional folic acid were not protected from these changes. So it may not only be the folic acid doing this. That's what the researchers thought at first, but they were astounded when they found out even if they were taking the supplemental folic acid, this increased risk for these neural tube defects did not go away. Interesting. Fascinating stuff. Very difficult um, for our listeners when you're reading studies about birth defects and, and a cause of birth defects. It can be very difficult to understand the study because birth defects just happen sometimes. Yes. And so trying to attribute them to a medication exposure or something like gluten and folic acid can be really wrought with difficulties and what we call biases in the literature. Yes. So we have to read carefully, uh, but most importantly, keep reading. And, and right now, that increased risk seems to be about 30% higher for anencephaly. That's where you're not born with the main part of the brain, above the brain stem, uh, or spina bifida, where the spinal cord does not come together the way that it should. Well, Tom, as you mentioned earlier, we're going to do our best uh, listeners to, to bring in a gluten and, and an intestinal expert at some point. We'll dedicate an entire show to understanding more about gluten and its interaction with various diseases. And, and please uh, go to RedeemerRadio.org forward slash doctor, and there's a place where you can send in questions to us that we'll then answer on the air. So thank you for listening to Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, signing off until next time. We'd ask you to remember that your medical decisions could have profound consequences. So choose wisely, choose Catholic. Next week on Dr. Doctor, we'll hear from OBGYN Dr. Patrick Young about the facts and fictions behind medical uses for oral contraception. Hear Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1, and find past episodes at RedeemerRadio.com doctor.